Welcome to this hour of Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined by State Senator Joe Comerford. We really appreciate her being with us today in particular because, well, Senator, tell us what you're doing today and then we'll get into what the why in just a moment. Sure. Um, thanks, Bill. Thanks, Buzz, for having me on. Uh, today, the Massachusetts Department of Agriculture Resources Commissioner and the Deputy Commissioner are headed to Western Massachusetts to tour flooded farm fields and meet with farmers. I'm helping to arrange their tour and we will make stops in uh, Northampton, Hatfield, Hadley, Deerfield, likely Waitley, and maybe beyond. And I'm working with Rep. Blay on this uh, and Rep. Carey. Um, and it's really important that we get the state's eyes on the damage done by these recent rains and hear from farmers directly about the impact of the devastation they're grappling with. What do you know about how bad the situation is for the farmers in view of the flooding? Well, you have to remember, and I know you do, both of you, some of these very same farmers endured the frost upheaval that killed numbers of crops, right, that have hurt the apple crop, hurt the peach crop, hurt the berry crop. And so, you know, this is like a, a devastating one-two punch where these same farmers, some of them, um, now have fields that are flooded. And I know you know this, and it is one of the things these farmers are grappling with, it's not only the damage done to the infrastructure, but potentially the loss of an entire crop if it's gone all the way underwater. And so that's what the farmers are assessing now. And Senator Comerford, last year they suffered from these enormous droughts that were, were damaging their crops. It's just uh, it's not an easy time for agriculture, yet it's such a critical uh, industry for this region. Exactly. I mean, this is the, it, you know, it's the spine of our region. We call it the heartbeat of our region, the economy, the driver. And these farmers, you know, many of them, you know, many generations in to stewarding this land and feeding our families. And, uh, you know, they need our help now. They need the state's help. They need our community's help. And people are responding. And we're also trying at the same time to get our arms around the damage. So the Massachusetts Emergency Management folks, not only are looking at communities like Northampton, Williamsburg, North Adams, and Montague, uh, uh, sorry, Wendell, and elsewhere for the kind of rain-related infrastructure damage. And you'll remember the July storm three years ago, where municipalities were disproportionately hit. Now we have to also assess farm damage. So, Senator Comerford, does the state have a, an additional role to play in addition, in, in addition to emergency management? Are there funds that are going to be made available? What yeah. can and should and will the state do? Well, you know, in my short time here, Bill, we've had two tragedies in, just in our district alone. One was the July storm I talked about um, that was millions of dollars in damage, uh, washed out roads, you know, completely upended infrastructure. And then we had as you'll remember, the fire, the catastrophic fire in Orange that claimed uh, two buildings um, and left a pile of rubble. The state does not have uh, a, a pot of money, an emergency response pot of money, much as MEMA would like it, much as uh, legislators like me would like it, MDAR would like it. So again, this will call into question uh, the need for such a pot of money. In both of those other cases, we were able to work, you know, with great senators and House members to secure 
in one case, the $7.5 million for the region after the July fund floods, and then uh, the $3 million for Orange. Um, you know, we still don't have a price tag. What we're doing right now, thanks to the great folks at NEMA, is we're encouraging estimates to get to NEMA because there is a threshold, a threshold amount, it's $11 million, by which we could seek federal funding. And I want to say hats off to Congressman McGovern, hats off to Senator Warren, both of whom called me um, and wanted to say, hey, I'm here. Um, you know, let us know as you get close to understanding whether or not you're going to go for a FEMA designation to get federal money. Could you explain um, a few of those acronyms and tell us what it means in reality in terms of getting sure. getting so, more money? So FEMA is the Federal Emergency Management. NEMA is the Massachusetts Emergency Management. Now, the state can and I believe should appropriate funds for this disaster, but we don't have the kind of coffers that the federal government does. So every time we have a big event like these July storms, we add up all of our uh, devastation damage and we see if it gets to a threshold high enough to tap in, tag in uh, the federal government, and that's FEMA. And so that's what NEMA is doing right now. It, uh, I was on the phone yesterday and actually all weekend with NEMA folks, you know, sending them to places in our district that I was hearing from communities were experiencing damage. So they could work with municipal officials to, you know, account for the damage. They're adding it up now. And the Healy Driscoll administration has been great about this. Um, they're adding it up now. We may not reach 11 million. We don't know. Um, and it'll take some time to understand. And once we understand, the state will decide, the governor and NEMA, the Massachusetts Emergency Management, will decide whether or not we're going to go for a federal de disaster um, declaration. And that would allow us to access some federal money. The last July storms, we did not reach 11 million. We came close. But we did not reach it. And so the state stepped in um, thanks to, you know, again, I was proud to be part of that, but also in partnership with folks like Ann Gobi and Adam Hines. This is a Western Massachusetts issue. It is also, I think you're going to tell me, tell us, is a state issue. Are you going to get traction to help Western Massachusetts uh, from a legislature your colleagues, they're frankly mostly come, most of them come from districts east of here. You know, they've done it before, um, and leadership has done it before. And, you know, I've been in touch with the Senate president. I've been in touch with the chair of Ways and Means. You know, they, the Senate is increasingly sympathetic, empathetic to rural needs. And so, you know, I, there's nothing for sure. I will say, though, that at an even higher altitude, we really do, as a state, need to set up an emergency fund that is managed by NEMA in partnership with affected agencies for moments such as this. You know, again, I, I'm five years in, um, and already we've had three disasters, right? So it's not like these are, you know, every 20 years. These happen every other year. And uh, it's time for us to be prepared to respond, especially with uh, climate change being a, a very negative and affecting factor here. 
We are speaking with State Senator Joe Comerford, Senator for the Hampshire-Franklin-Worcester District. I would like to go to a different topic because there's so much we want to ask Bill, you. Bill, could I just add sure. one other question that I have? I, I've been in contact with some friends up in Montpelier, Vermont, which has unthinkable yeah. uh, devastation. But the, the, those floods are coming downstream in the Connecticut, and they're affecting the Connecticut at Montague, even in Hartford. Have you heard anything more about the extent of the I'm damage sure. to the Connecticut River? Sure, yeah, of course. Uh, so, you know, I'll say the devastation in Vermont is, is as you say, unthinkable. It's, it's wrenching. Um, the folks in Vermont have been, I believe, uh, from what I can see and from what I hear from the Massachusetts emergency folks, really managing it well. You know, they have reservoirs and dams and uh, tributaries that they are trying to not allow to uh, rush at such extensive levels that would, you know, further aggravate the Connecticut. Um, so, you know, but our Connecticut River has crested. It, you know, as you know, Northampton had to close, for example, Route 5 uh, because of uh, threats. And certainly the Mill River, Miller's River, Deerfield River, Green River, you know, these are all overflowing their banks. So, you know, I, we haven't assessed yet the damage to the Connecticut um, but I will, you know, we, we already know that more needs to be done to make river banks resilient, right? And there's lots of natural things that we can do. And that's one of the programs the state has that I love the most is called the Municipal Vulnerability Program. And it's actually for moments just like this, uh, to prevent moments just like this with culverts and um, river edges, it, it helps you know, it helps us either harden or soften the infrastructure, depending, right? Soften it with natural means and harden it with a, you know, a culvert that doesn't get collapsed upon itself. And then, you know, and then all hell breaks loose. Well, on that optimistic note, <laughs> maybe we could turn to another topic uh, of deep concern. And I know deep concern to you, Senator Comerford, and that is what is going to happen to diversity on our college, our state college campuses and our university campuses in light of the Supreme Court's affirmative action decision. I'm wondering if you could share your thoughts on that and let us know whether there's anything the legislature needs to do or whether this is going to be something that needs to be addressed internally and will be addressed internally by the University of Massachusetts and the, uh, and the state college system. Yeah, you know, I, um, I agree with you. It was, it's a wrenching day, what, yet one more wrenching day because of the Supreme Court. Um, and I appreciate your piece, Bill, and I appreciate the, the numbers of folks who are responding. Um, so the governor uh, and Secretary Tutwiler, um, you know, have long anticipated this. I signed on to a statement um, that is being held by, uh, for example, the Joint Committee on Higher Education that I am the Senate chair of, plus Senate and Health leadership plus the governor and the secretary, um, you know, saying that Massachusetts will will resist this um, and will, you know, not allow uh, the, the gains that have been made by smart affirmative action to be reversed in the Commonwealth. And that's heartening. Um, but but what are the practical measures associated with that? And um, there's some there are things that the executive branch can do, and that's the governor and the secretary. And there are things that the legislature can do. And um, you and Max Page and I spoke uh, about uh, about some of this, you know, with regard to funding. And, uh, you know, we are, thanks to the great work of the MTA and Max and so many advocates, we are pushing forward on 
real transformative generational funding for public higher education to make it truly accessible. Um, but what else can we do? And that's where policy comes in. So right now I am working on a, an omnibus bill um, that would take numbers of proposals in the higher education committee, everything from ending legacy admissions in on college campuses in the Commonwealth to ending early decision to ending the practice of holding transcripts because of campus debt, numbers of things that we can and should do uh, in the Commonwealth as a, as a response, if you will, to the affirmative action decision. Um, my team and I are at work on that to show it to Senate leadership as a proposal. Um, and so that's one of many, I'm sure, initiatives happening statewide. Senator, what is an omnibus bill? Omnibuses, think of it as like a bus, right? Like a, <laughs> like a, a vehicle that would have a number of uh, smaller proposals wrapped in it. Um, we often do that in the legislature. We bundle things up into larger uh, opportunities. Um, for example, on this show, I've talked about the numbers of climate bills that um, Rep. Lay, Rep. Dom, and I have had bundled up into much larger climate omnibuses. Um, so this would be a, a higher education equity omnibus. And are there specific stakeholders who are suggesting how diversity can be maintained and increased at the university and in college campuses, notwithstanding that affirmative action itself is now prohibited? Oh, sure. I mean, these each of these bill proposals has many advocates behind it, right? Early college, AP credits, transfer credits, you know, ending legacy admissions, ending early uh, decision, all of these, all of these ideas, right? Policies are just ideas. All of these ideas have lots of folks who are champions of these, just like the MTA is championing, you know, this funding revolution that we want. Um, so it's, you know, these are good minds. These are not new ideas, but these are ideas absolutely that have come to the foreground. We are speaking with State Senator Joe Comerford. Right after this break, we are going to ask the senator about proposals and legislation and laws regarding gender-affirming care and the Green Bank and housing and student loans, and then we'll get to breaking news maybe, summer vacation. Does the senator get one right after this? city. <laughs> <laughs> More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money, which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. 
Fitting in matters. Not feeling left out, it's only natural, especially in high school. At the Hartsbrook School in Hadley, fitting in doesn't mean conforming. It just means a sense of belonging. If you're into sports or into writing, if you're into arts or into math, if you're into nature or into technology, you can thrive at the Hartsbrook School. Childhood gives way to adolescence, and you want to explore nearly every new thing you encounter or master one thing. Hartsbrook education gives you time to breathe and focus. Learning is unhurried and intentional and never institutionalized. Subjects are often integrated, studying history through the lens of architecture, for example, or social studies by working for food justice. Hartsbrook prepares you to look the world in the eye and take responsibility for yourself and your community. The Hartsbrook School on a 55-acre campus in Hadley. New students welcome in any grade. Schedule a visit on the Hartsbrook School website. Just call or email the admissions office. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Senator Joe Comerford, Senator for the Hampshire Franklin Worcester District. Senator, we'd like to continue discussion at least for another minute or two about higher education. We were discussing before the break how the university and the college campus college system in Massachusetts can increase, maintain, and increase diversity. I'd like to go to the other Supreme Court decision recent regarding higher education, and that is the decision which we have talked about on the show and will continue to cover, uh, the decision by the Supreme Court to kill President Biden's loan forgiveness, uh, to kill that program. I'd like to know where things stand in Massachusetts with regard to uh, affordability of college for students here in the Commonwealth? Well, you know, I mean, I think uh, I think a lot hangs in the budget discussions that are ongoing. As you know, we um, should have had a budget July 1st. We, uh, this, the leadership in the House and the Senate are uh, at work on reconciling the vision of the Senate and the vision of the House with the vision of the governor. Um, plus taxes, so it's super, super uh, layered um, this time around, and I have a lot of, a lot of empathy um, for how complicated it is, for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, the Senate's proposal around higher education is robust, and there's a great deal of aid um, envisioned by the Senate's higher education funding uh, level. So I am hopeful that we pull through and are able to increase both aid for students, but also the support that students would receive once they get to campus. And that's everything from advising to mental health support to other kinds of um, campus casework support that I know especially many of our community colleges engage in. So is there any hope for 
students with large college debt from Massachusetts institutions that they're carrying now can and or will the state do anything to help them? I, you know, this is a good question, Bill. Um, spending of this magnitude is often federal, right, which is why I think rightly President Biden saw it as his responsibility. Um, you know, I, the Biden administration, as you've seen and I've seen, isn't giving up uh, on its hopes for student loan forgiveness. And, you know, so I think our, we are best tuned toward supporting federal loan relief, even as we work as hard as we can to make college more affordable in Massachusetts, generationally affordable. Senator, I'd like to go to a different topic that we had discussed on the show a bit a few days ago, and this is the Green Bank. And can you tell us what that is and where it stands as a legislative proposal? Well, it's, it's no, no longer. It, you know, the governor, governor went and did it. Oh, she um, did. Okay, sorry. She's doing many other great things, um, along with, in this case, her chief, climate chief, uh, Melissa Hoffer, and EEA Secretary Rebecca Tepper. Um, this was an idea that has been percolating for some time. It's happened in other locations. Um, and uh, they went and did a version that works for the Healy Driscoll administration that would really be, I think, both a climate booster, but also a housing booster. Uh, so they are, they've capitalized it uh, and, you know, they've launched it and now i believe they're you know they're working on the many many details and can you give us a 30 second description of what this is and what the program will do i understand it's not fully uh operational yeah, yet. It's, a little, it's a little too premature um you know they're they're making the regulations and the parameters for the program so i would be i, I don't think i'd be telling you anything very useful at this moment but essentially you know, we need capital for climate and for housing. Um, we need that. We, we know that, right? There's going to be a, a housing bond bill, for example, uh, coming up very shortly in the session, I hope. And that's bonding is borrowing and borrowing we need to do in, and we can do as a state for specific issues like housing. Um, and in order to meet the demand for affordable housing and decent housing, and in order to meet the unbelievably horrible challenges of climate change, we need um, to respond, and that takes money. And states have to generate vehicles um, that are money vehicles. So this is one of those, I think, very smart decisions by the Healy Driscoll administration. So the Green Bank is a program, as I understand it, that will encourage uh, and facilitate new housing, and will do it in an environmentally sensitive and appropriate way. Is that a fair description? <laughs> I think that's a great description. That's the elevator pitch. Okay. Okay. Well, and I, I think it's been seeded with about fifty million dollars in the aspirations. Yeah, fifty be, million. Yeah, that'll be much yeah, more. I, sh I should have mentioned that the Healy Driscoll administration seeded it with fifty million. That the legislature had to appropriate appropriate at some point. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the executive has a lot of leeway once money is appropriated. And in this case, uh, you know, we saw the, the Governor Baker, for example, do that a bunch during the pandemic, you know, coming up with money for vaccines or for testing. Um, 
the legislature didn't appropriate all of that. They had it within its larger coffers. And that's the executive branch's, I believe, rightful purview um, to figure out the money that it, you know, that the legislature has appropriated and, and make good use of it. In this case, I, I completely agree that this was smart and sound and timely and bold, rightfully bold. Um, and so, uh, and now we, we're off to the races, right? We're off to get it done. Senator Comerford, on another topic, um, uh, in terms of Massachusetts prote- protecting reproductive rights and gender-affirming care, the legislature has passed and the governor has signed a lot of legislation. I'm wondering if there is more to do or is the legislature pausing at this point? Sorry, Bill, you cut out for me for just a second. Can you ask that question again? Sure. The legislature has passed, the governor has signed a number of bills that protect protect reproductive choice Ah, and protect gender-affirming care uh, here in the Commonwealth. My question is, is there more to do or is this... uh, That's that's the question. Is there more to do? Yes, absolutely. Thanks. I didn't hear those... I didn't hear the topics of your question. So, yes, emphatically, yes, in both cases. And... I will say that um, the Senate president has been excellent on this, uh, and as have many important advocacy organizations like Reproductive Equity Now and Planned Parenthood. In the, in the reproductive equity space, um, there's the equity piece, right? We're going to see some brutal numbers today around the disparities, racial disparities in, uh, for birthing people and their children. And, um, Perhaps we can talk about them, uh, you know, on another show once I've digested them. But we got a heads up from DPH because of our work on the Racial Inequity Commission last session. And it is, this is, I think, should sober us all to the point of significant action. Um, As you are, as you know, we also have to really look at crisis pregnancy centers and then uh, perhaps also most especially data, data privacy, data tracking, um, of individuals. And, you know, so that's in the, in that cohort of bills and policy and budget priorities that have to happen. And then in the gender affirming space, there's a bunch of stuff that has to get done. I I have a bill um, that would remove some pretty horrible prior authorization requirements for gender affirming care um, requirements that other other kinds of care d- does not require, but it's the sort of, sort of homophobia or transphobia that drives these. Um, and we also really need to take a take stock, actually, on um, on where there's gaps in care for trans folks, uh, non-binary folks, and you know there is something in the Senate budget proposal if it makes it through, but we have to expand it, trying to figure out how we scale the reach and the capacity for um, for folks giving uh, gender-affirming care. And that's another, uh, a little bit more complicated topic, but we can allow consultation um, for primary care folks so that everyone, for example, doesn't have to go only to Trans, Trans Health Northampton, which is a beautiful place, um, but it can't see every single individual in the Commonwealth or New England, almost trying to. Um, but it can scale the reach of its expertise if we help it through both policy and money. So there's lots to do in both spaces. Um, And, you know, again, I'm heartened that the Senate wants to do these things. And 
you may remember that the Senate president, after we passed that first raft of bills and policies for gender affirming and, trans- and reproductive equity, um, she appointed Cindy Friedman and me to uh, chair a working group. And we had four teen um, legislators sign up. That's a lot of the Senate. Um, and we surfaced the p- proposals I just uh, shared with you. And we're working them through right now with leadership. And I, I hope we see these come to the come to see the light of day. I have I have some good hope that they will. Let me just quickly note that the anti-tracking bill is to prevent electronic tracking of people so that they can access the health care they need without, for example, the state of Texas tracking where they've been. I, ju- I just want to say, Bill, Senator Comerford, so floods and college admissions and affordable housing and reproductive rights and gender affirmation and tracking us electronically. Do you, do you ever have time off? That's the next question. That's the last question. Do you get a summer vacation? And I have to go, you guys. Um, <laughs> I will take time um, with my family this summer. My wife, Anne Hennessy, is a rock star, and um, she's been holding it down. You may know she's running for school committee again. She did six years, and she's going back. And, uh, yes, you know, bless her. I'm grateful I'm grateful to her. She's an, you know, a, a, an award-winning educator herself, public educator. Um, but yes, we will, we will uh, spend time with our gorgeous teenagers um, this summer for a bit. There's lots of, there's many, many miles to go before that moment, um, and I'm going to start one of them now. So I appreciate you both. Lucky teenagers. Thank, thank you, Senator Cumber, for really appreciate your Bye, time. Dear. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Some western mass farms were devastated by severe rain and flooding this week, with some losing the majority of their crops. Most of Grow Food Northampton's community farm was submerged in water, damaging most of the crops after the Mill River broke its banks. Mountain View Farm in East Hampton lost nearly all of its produce for its CSA customers this year and started a GoFundMe. As of Tuesday afternoon, the river levels started to recede but are expected to remain high throughout the weekend with more rain on the way. Flooding along rivers in Franklin County has presented many challenges to local farms. Seaslick's farmstead in South Deerfield is experiencing flooding in their cornfields in the North Meadows. They're hoping to salvage some of the crops and plant again. Natural Roots Farm in Conway sustained significant crop damage and lost some chickens and farm equipment in the initial flooding. Volunteers joined the farmers Tuesday to help with cleanup after their fields were covered in water. Mount Tom Road near the Oxbow will be closed in both directions until further notice due to flooding, according to an announcement by the Northampton Police Department. Barricades will be in place on both the East Hampton and Northampton sides of Mount Tom Road to prevent access. However, access to the Route 91 ramp will still be available for those traveling from Northampton. Well, it's going to be a sunny day today. We do have a sun cloud mix for our sky conditions and highs in the upper 80s and the lower 90s. Then tonight, it's going to stay mostly clear with the chance for a spot shower or two. Lows are in the mid to high 60s. Then tomorrow, we're going to get that sun cloud mix again during the day, but showers in the p.m. Highs are in the high 80s and the low 90s. I'm Jack Wu with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler.
This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La representante estadounidense Marjorie Taylor Greene, una fiel aliada del expresidente Donald Trump, fue expulsada del grupo House Freedom Caucus de línea dura después de enfrentarse con una colega legisladora, dijo un miembro del caucus. La decisión de expulsar a la incendiaria Greene del grupo de línea dura de aproximadamente tres docenas de personas se produjo semanas después de que ella participara en un acalorado enfrentamiento en el piso de la Cámara de Representantes con la representante Lauren Boebert sobre el plan de esta última para tratar de forzar una votación para destituir al presidente demócrata Joe Biden. En otras informaciones, las autoridades estadounidenses otorgaron el jueves la aprobación total a un fármaco para el Alzheimer que se sigue de cerca, allanando el camino para que Medicare y otros planes de seguros comiencen a cubrir el tratamiento de las personas con la enfermedad que les roba el cerebro. La Administración de Alimentos y Medicamentos aprobó el fármaco intravenoso Lekembi para pacientes con demencia leve y otros síntomas causados por la enfermedad de Alzheimer temprana. Es el primer medicamento que se ha demostrado de manera convincente que ralentiza modestamente el deterioro cognitivo causado por el Alzheimer. El proceso de conversión de un medicamento a la aprobación completa de la FDA generalmente atrae poca atención, pero los pacientes y defensores de la enfermedad de Alzheimer han estado presionando al gobierno federal durante meses después de que los funcionarios de Medicare anunciaran el año pasado que no pagarían el uso rutinario de medicamentos como Lekembi hasta que recibieran la aprobación total de la FDA. La gran mayoría de los estadounidenses con Alzheimer obtienen su cobertura de salud a través de Medicare, y las aseguradoras privadas han seguido su ejemplo al retener la cobertura de Lekembi hasta que reciban el respaldo completo de la FDA. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega, y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We welcome back to the show one of our regulars here, uh, Professor Carrie Baker from Smith College, who has a regular segment, Feminist Futures. She's here with us for a special, a special. Here we are. Where it's not. <laughs> it's it's a uh, additional time with us, which I really appreciate. And I saw. Uh, the photograph of uh, Carrie Baker addressing the East Hampton. Uh, I was there. Yes. East Hampton <laughs> City Council in favor of an ordinance that passed, and that then was vetoed by the mayor. And I uh, read your comments, at least as reported in the Daily Hampshire Gazette. And I'm so pleased you could join us today. I've, I've read the ordinance uh, many times now. And I have read the state law on uh, expanding protections for reproductive and gender-affirming care. And I see and a lot of language that is replicated in the ordinance that is in the state law. And my question, uh, Carrie, is what does this ordinance do? Yeah. It, because it does say at the beginning, well, we're expanding uh, state law protections. Uh, I would appreciate knowing from you, because you obviously are student of this ordinance and spoke and addressed the council in favor of it. What does it do that the state law doesn't? Absolutely. So great to be here, Bill. Thank you for having me. So this ordinance does two things. First, 
It requires that the city of East Hampton maintain up-to-date information on its website about legally protected healthcare information, what it is, where it's available, and where it's not available, and any state-issued advisory about such care, like the attorney general issued an advisory about crisis pregnancy centers a while back, and information about how to file a consumer complaint. So it just requires that the East Hampton Department of Health post that information on the website. Where can you get real care, and where might you be misled? The second part of the ordinance ensures that anyone seeking such care, and this is reproductive health care and gender-affirming care, whether that person is a Massachusetts resident or an out-of-state resident, that they will be protected from having their health care information shared by East Hampton City employees. And that's both people under contract with East Hampton and people employed by East Hampton. And the reason for this is, well, let me just back up. The state created this right in July of 2022 after Dobbs and said that the state- Dobbs being the case that uh, reversed Roe versus Wade. Right, that overturned abortion rights. And it basically said that in Massachusetts, people can provide abortion care without fear of being prosecuted by Texas or having a civil suit be brought by somebody in Texas by a husband of a woman that came up here and got an abortion. And, you know, these bounty hunter laws that are that are now in existence in several states that empower basically anybody to sue anybody who helps a woman get an abortion. And so the Massachusetts And that's the state law. law. That's, that's the, the state law. Okay. And so what this ordinance does is it, it enforces that state law at the municipal level. So basically it says that if any city employee divulges personal medical information to a third party, like the state of Texas criminally prosecuting a doctor in this state, or a husband suing a doctor who provided his wife an abortion, that that employee will be disciplined for violating the state law. So it basically enacts at a local level the right that exists at the state level. And so this is a all-of-government approach. We are not just leaving it to states to enforce this ordinance. We are creating local enforcement mechanisms, local implications if a city employee violates that state law. Yeah. I, the question I have is, I is this, uh, I assume that employees and contractors with East Hampton are bound to obey state law anyway. And so my question is, although this may simply affirm that, uh, someone, an employee who violates state law could be disciplined, disciplined and depending on how significant is disciplined severely, including termination, for violating state law. So why is an ordinance more effective? Why, why does it change anything that the city of East Hampton otherwise could or couldn't do? So part of it is is that there is an education component to educate local officials, because a lot of local people don't necessarily know about what's going on in, in Boston, and they may not be aware that there are these protections and that they, if they turn this information over, there's any implications. 
because historically the pattern has been you get a warrant from a government in another state, you know, and you comply with it, and you turn over information, or you you enforce that warrant in your city court, or you, you know, um, and and so this is a little unusual. This law, it's not normally how things work. Normally, states enforce the orders of other states, but because you know Texas is banning abortion and we protect abortion rights, and they're trying to come here and interfere with care that our doctors are giving to people, there, there is, it's an unusual kind of law, and, and it could be challenged, by the way, also, legally. But here's what's not unusual, uh, Bill. Uh, you know, we just had a situation in my town, Ashfield. There is a statute about noise, about nuisance, and yet we passed an ordinance, a local ordinance, to just be more, uh, have a little bit more echo yeah. and a little more, more force to enforce what already was on the state books. Yeah. So in other words, creating local repercussions as well as the state repercussions. Okay. But the ordinance uh, itself doesn't have, uh, it, or, the, the ordinance provides that someone can be disciplined for violating the state law. And, and my question and, and my question is, uh, why couldn't this have been done simply as an order from departments to their uh, employees? Here's the state law. Don't violate it if you do, like as if you violated any other state law. Uh, you could be disciplined. I'm not saying it's a bad thing that it's an ordinance, but it seems to me that it doesn't really uh, amplify uh, something that couldn't be uh, stressed to employees anyway. Am I wrong? Well, it seems like there's various ways of doing this. I mean, what you just suggested is what Salem did. So Salem did it not through an ordinance, but through an order. This is this this is the city, not the, the city. Not, not the city council. The city of Salem. <laughs> yes, I got it. I'm kidding you. Did this, and um, and so the, there are different ways one might do this. Um, I don't know, uh, you know, exactly why in East Hampton they decided to do it this way. I think in part is that they felt it was a really serious, important issue and needed, you know, and they wanted to use the democratic process to make sure that it happens and not leave it to the sort of chance of whether a random public official might do it or not do it. By creating an ordinance, everybody's bound, and not just one particular official, but all the officials are bound. And it's made very clear to the entire city employees that this is the expectation. And like I say, it also creates, yes, you could just, you know, Owen could have, Owen Zarat, the city councilor who sponsored this, could have just gone to the Department of Health and asked them to put up on their website up-to-date information about reproductive health care. That's what happened here in Northampton. So um, I and some other folks have been working with the city of Northampton to get a page on the Northampton city website about here's how you can get real reproductive health care and watch out for these people pretending that are really anti-abortion groups pretending to offer reproductive health care. We in Northampton now have a page that does that. So we decided just to I would point out, I think the city would characterize it slightly differently, but maybe they I, would. I get the idea. I mean, actually look at it. It's, it's you know, it gives information yeah. about where to find um, sort of board certified medical standard reproductive health care and, and information about where to file complaints about fake clinics. And, also, and so, you know, that's again, we did that just by going into the Department of Health and they could have done that in East Hampton. They 
decided to do it this way. They felt like they wanted to elevate the issue, create the force of a public ordinance. You know, it's similar to like the Roe Act resolutions that we published a couple or that we had passed by various city councils like Northampton and East Hampton several years ago. That wasn't like enforceable in any way. It was just a statement of sentiment by the city council. But I think that at this moment when, you know, 19 states are banning and restricting abortion and people are fleeing those states to come to states like Massachusetts, that we need to take uh, um, you know, positive action to ensure people that they are safe when they come to Massachusetts, that health care providers will be protected at the state and local level, that we will not let them be targeted by harassing lawsuits by, you know, Greg Abbott in, in Texas or by, you know, the, the sort of crazy husband of some woman, you know, and this happened, right, in, in Texas where an ex-husband sued his wife's friends because they helped her get an abortion. We don't want that happening here in Massachusetts. Right. We and, want to create protection. Right. And to, our, and to our legislators' credit, they have worked aggressively to protect. Absolutely. Protect and to the credit friend. of this East Hampton City councilors, they are also following up on that state level action to create local enforcement um, yeah, but, initiatives. Yeah, I, except that, well, except that there is no enforcement mechanism except the discipline of an employee, which actually gets to me my next question. I'd really like to ask. Well, before this. you ask it, Bill, I just want to, what you were saying, Professor Carrie Baker, it, there are resolutions. Governmental entities mm -hmm. often pass resolutions which just says, we, a local municipality, are opposed to a war in Iraq or yeah. opposed to something that's globally huge, yeah. much bigger than the boundaries of the town. And sometimes I think it's really important. We have 351 cities and towns. Yeah. And a lot of them, Amherst, Northampton, Great Barrington, Pittsfield, my town, are really concerned about re reproductive rights and want to make statements yes. that, that do promote or foster a climate in which state law is more recognizable and more and educate people. Absolutely. And East Hampton's not the first. Cambridge has passed a deceptive advertising ordinance along with Somerville. Um, Amherst, Salem. Right? Well, Amherst has is proposed one. Um, Framingham did a proclamation. So this was more like a resolution, not an ordinance. But um, there are efforts in cities across the state. And I and other activists have created a website called abortiontruthcampaign.org, which has copies of all these ordinances that have passed and others that have been proposed, as well as the most recent research on misinformation about abortion that's circulating post-Dobbs, media coverage, sort of a take action page. So there's a lot of information. And passing ordinances is only one of a range of strategies that people are using. A couple weeks ago, there were standouts at nine crisis pregnancy centers across the state. These are anti-abortion organizations that pretend to be medical clinics offering reproductive health care but are really there to try to convince people not to get abortions. And, you know, recently, and this is connected to our activism as well, a lawsuit has been brought against a crisis pregnancy center in Worcester who gave a ultrasound to a woman and told her her pregnancy was fine when, in fact, it was an ectopic pregnancy. And a few days later, she Which had... Which means what? Oh, an ectopic pregnancy is when the pregnancy is in the fallopian tube. It's unviable and it's life-threatening. And a few it's days later, it's life threatening to the to the woman. pregnant to the person. Yes, and she had severe pains. Went to the hospital, and 
you know, it, it was it, she almost lost her life, and she and it damaged her reproductive health. And so I, she thought she was getting medical advice. Yeah, she thought she was getting not medical ideological advice. exactly proselytizing. And so she's filed a class action lawsuit against this CPC in Worcester. And you know, these kinds of things are happening across the country. A CPC in Kentucky was using unsterilized ultrasound equipment to do transvaginal ultrasounds on women, and that was exposed. In addition, these CPCs are treating minors. They are doing ultrasounds on people who are 15, 16, 17 years old. They're not checked for Cori check, meaning that whether they're the volunteers that are running these machines have histories of sexual assault or criminal behavior. So it's really, it's, it's quite a serious situation. We are speaking with Smith College professor Carrie Baker. We'll be right back more on this right after this message. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the Valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside, get a beach read. Like Happy Place by Emily Henry. Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads. For the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice, and you won't be able to put it down, except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Smith College Professor Carrie Baker. We are talking about the East Hampton Ordinance that was passed last week, vetoed by the mayor, titled Safe and Fair Access to Legally Protected Reproductive and Gender-Affirming Health Care Services. The question I'd been wanting to ask you before the break, Carrie, was who in East Hampton, given that the first provision in this ordinance says that no city agent may provide assistance. And I think we've, we agree that uh, that would be a, if a city official did that, it would in, it would violate state law. Uh, and now it would also violate this ordinance. I, my question is, who in East Hampton, who, what city official 
would come to have reproductive health care or gender-affirming health care information about someone in East Hampton? How would that come to be? Well, it could be that the city um, uh, gets a report that, that something's happened in the city. Or, you know, so for instance, if a Texas prosecutor came to East Hampton and, and tried to file a warrant to get information about what the city, information they might have about medical providers or, um, you know, other information that might have been shared with the city by, you know, anti-abortion groups. You know, an anti-abortion group hears that somebody got came from another state to East Hampton to get care, and that information became known by the city, or they were trying to enforce an extradition order, or they were trying to enforce some other kind of um, criminal investigatory tool um, to try to get information from you know, a medical provider in East Hampton who provided gender-affirming care to a child who was, or an adult who was coming from one of these states with bans. Um, you know, again, I don't know all the technicalities of the law, but I know that that there are, across the country, there are ways that prosecutors are getting information and using it. You know, a mother in Texas, in a, excuse me, in Nebraska just got sentenced to nine to 18 months because she helped her daughter get abortion pills. And that they, you know, went to California and got from Facebook conversation, uh, online messaging between the mother and the daughter, and then they used that in the criminal prosecution. So there are creative ways that anti-abortion prosecutors are going after people to try to prosecute them. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. We have been speaking with Smith College Professor Carrie Baker. And they are, there's communication going on here between Buzz and Carrie. Can can I just pop in for one second? One one second. One second, go. They're trying to override the veto. So Mayor LaChapelle vetoed the ordinance. And there will be a hearing on August 2nd at 6 p.m. And we're encouraging people to show up and also to contact East East Hampton City Councilors to encourage them to override the feed. And we will have Mayor LaChapelle here on the show on Monday to discuss this. Great. Thank you all for joining us. This is Talk the Talk. Are you or someone you know addicted to drugs? Narcotics Anonymous can help. NA has been helping addicts since 1953. We are recovering addicts who meet regularly to help each other stay clean. We offer meetings and services online and in person. To find one of our meetings or to get information on what services are offered, visit www.westernmassna.org or call us at 1-866-NA-HELP-YOU. That's 1-866-624-3578. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-5989. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. Admitted to the Alliance, but it will not be left alone. We're going to provide security to Ukraine uh, for its needs and against any aggression that may occur. Today, the members of the G7 are launching a joint declaration of support for Ukraine to make it clear that our support will last long into the future. 
The summit did agree to begin the process of admitting Sweden into the alliance. The Consumer Price Index, which measures the average change in the price of basic goods and services, has cooled to its lowest point since 2021. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger takes a look at the numbers. Food prices are still high, but they are coming down. Food is up 5.7 percent from a year ago. Energy prices are down substantially from last year. Energy overall down by 16.7 percent. Gas is down by 26.5 percent. The lower numbers are a sign the Fed's efforts to cool inflation may be taking hold. The Iowa State Legislature has passed a ban on almost all abortions after roughly six weeks of pregnancy. This protester said abortion should be up to each individual woman to decide. She should be able to decide for herself if she is going to be pregnant and have a baby or not. Republican Representative Brad Sherman took a different view. If they're not prepared to have a baby, they shouldn't have sex. If they're that concerned about it, I will stand for everyone's right to practice abstinence. More homes have had to be evacuated in the Rolling Hills Estates neighborhood of California thanks to a landslide. Mayor Britt Huff says a local state of emergency has been declared. Fire chief indicated that it would probably be about two weeks before things had settled enough that people possibly could access what's remaining of their homes. 17 homes have had to be evacuated. In Phoenix, Arizona, the heat is not letting up. CBS's Omar Villafranca is there. There is not going to be any break for folks here in the southwest. It's expected to be hotter this weekend. Temperatures of at least 117 degrees. More trouble for Swifties trying to buy tickets. Ticketmaster says sales of tickets for two cities in France had to be halted due to glitches. The shows aren't even until May or June of next year. Ticketmaster had a host of issues back in November for Taylor Swift's U.S. tour. This is CBS News. Find great hires fast with Indeed. Their end-to-end hiring solution makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. But right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free Reputation Report Card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. A soccer star has landed in the United States to play for a team here in the U.S. CBS's Matt Piper has the story. Soccer star Lionel Messi touched down in Fort Lauderdale via private plane. The Argentine superstar and new striker for the Inter-Miami CF. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Some western mass farms were devastated by severe rain and flooding this week, with some losing the majority of their crops. Most of Grow Food Northampton's community farm was submerged in water, damaging most of the crops after the Mill River broke its banks. 
Mountain View Farm in East Hampton lost nearly all of its produce for its CSA customers this year and started a GoFundMe. As of Tuesday afternoon, the river levels started to recede but are expected to remain high throughout the weekend with more rain on the way. Flooding along rivers in Franklin County has presented many challenges to local farms. Sea Slicks Farmstead in South Deerfield is experiencing flooding in their cornfields in the North Meadows. They're hoping to salvage some of the crops and plant again. Natural Roots Farm in Conway sustained significant crop damage and lost some chickens and farm equipment in the initial flooding. Volunteers joined the farmers Tuesday to help with cleanup after their fields were covered in water. Mount Tom Road near the Oxbow will be closed in both directions until further notice due to flooding, according to an announcement by the Northampton Police Department. Barricades will be in place on both the East Hampton and Northampton sides of Mount Tom Road to prevent access. However, access to the Route 91 ramp will still be available for those traveling from Northampton. Well, it's going to be a sunny day today. We do have a sun cloud mix for our sky conditions and highs in the upper 80s and the lower 90s. Then tonight, it's going to stay mostly clear with the chance for a spot shower or two. Lows are in the mid to high 60s. Then tomorrow, we're going to get that sun cloud mix again during the day, but showers in the p.m. Highs are in the high 80s and the low 90s. I'm Jack Wu with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And Bill Newman, we have been covering, we have been reading, we have been talking about um, so many affronts to decencies that have been happening nationally um like for example united states senator claiming that uh, white nationalists uh are not racist he said several times they are americans or the supreme court of the united states gutting affirmative action or um the backlash that we've seen this rise in hate and racism it's just so important uh what's happening in this country we're moving backwards in the arena of race however we have this very interesting um, sort of uh, project that's developed in West Waitley, right here in our neighborhood, um, which is a focus on things that are important. In the, it promotes acoustic music, and it promotes things that are important to us. Tonight, I think it's sold out. We'll be talking uh, in a minute about it. But tonight, Wednesday, uh, in the West Waitley Chapel, which is where these things happen, there will be an acapella story of African-American music from its origins to today. It's called Ball in the House. And with us to talk about this concert and others at, that are going to be happening on Watermelon Wednesdays is Paul Newland, the director of Watermelon, Waste, uh, Watermelon Wednesdays at Waste, West Waitley. Too many W's <laughs> involved here, Paul. Well, that's the idea. It was initially conceived of as an alliterative organization uh, as I well can only as, say wow. As, as, a, as well as a 501c3 cultural educational organization uh, dedicated to bringing uh, diversity and um, to, to our audience through acoustic music by performers from all over the world. And I want to back up from tonight's concert to last week's concert, which is still available on our website via video. You can go to our, our video uh, channel and watch Kashona Trio. Kashona is a musical educator, and her trio, they're all from Nashville, 
but they sing uh, songs uh, of gospel, R&B, and soul, many of which are written by Kashona herself. And uh, it was a very stirring and powerful, mostly a cappella performance, although Kashona plays guitar, but it was all about the struggle and her personal experiences as a black artist, uh, woman in America, trying to make it in the music scene. Um, fascinating. I urge people to go click on the link to the video and check it out. And also tonight's show hopefully will be videoed as well. Ball in the house. Ball in the house. And I'm super excited about these guys because they're, uh, they're a five a five-member a cappella group who evidently have been doing this for 20 or so years. I'd only heard about them last year when I went to a concert. They gave a concert educational presentation they made at Westfield State University where my partner Claudia works, and she said, you've got to come down and hear these guys for Diversity Day. We went down and heard them, and as soon as they got through the half, I, I went up to them and I said, you guys, I hope you're available to do a concert in uh, West Whateley as part of Watermelon Wednesdays. And maybe they said to you, where? Where? And they <laughs> said, who are you and where's that? Where? Who? A lot of W's and, here. And they're going to show <laughs> That's right. They're going to show up at uh, 4 o'clock today for load-in, and uh, we'll have them over for dinner, get to know them a little better, and then they'll put on a, a performance that's a mixture of education and, and a cappella virtuosity. And... Uh, well, lucky you, lucky them, lucky those people who are lucky enough to have tickets. You, Paul Newland, you're an educator. I am an educator, that's and right. And this thing you've created, this thing that you're director of, is as much education as it is entertainment, right? Well, it's a lot of education. It's a lot of cultural stuff. It's, uh, it's, it all takes place in an 1896 old wooden chapel. Uh, so it's historic. And that's the West Waitley Chapel. That's a congregational At, at 153 church. Conway Road in West Waitley. People often get diverted by GPS to Conway Road, South Deerfield. So if you're using GPS out there, beware. Uh, and Especially since the road is, I think, flooded right now. No, it, it, it's, not, it's pretty clear now. But yesterday we had Northampton's water people up here. Uh, preparing us to evacuate because the dams behind us are wa uh, water that goes to Northampton uh, through the generosity of Waitley. So uh, we want to keep that water going to Northampton and not spilling over the dike hmm. and flooding our house. Hmm. But it was scary. It was actually scary. It's never happened before. So, Paul Noon, we are joshing you a bit about uh, uh, all the W's and the alliteration but Watermelon Wednesdays has been going on for a long time now. And I would be interested to know, because this is not easy to keep a series, a, a venue, a, uh, a production like this going year after year after year. And yet you have in this place, West Whiteley. <laughs> How did this happen? How does it happen? Because it's really, and credit to you, quite extraordinary. Well, I was actually inspired. This has been going on. This is the 24th year. And I was inspired initially by David Kaner, who is no longer with us, but a very prominent uh, Valley musician, fiddler, and a promoter of music himself. And he developed a series in Montague that, uh, that I thought did him great credit. And uh, I'm trying to carry on in that tradition of having 
big-time music in a small-time place. And uh, I think we've been fortunate to be able to pull that off. And I've had great help. It's basically myself and my partner, Claudia, doing this. And we have other neighborhood helpers occasionally. Um, but we just love doing it. And it's a real treat. I have a day job or had a <laughs> day job. Uh, which a, was? Which was uh, being a lecturer at Smith College. And I would like to know this because I am just... It's just mind-blowing to me that year after year, performance after performance, you have people who are coming from a place of fame and extraordinary accomplishment in the music world. And I'd like to know, how do you get them to come to West Whateley? Well, we spend a considerable time uh, going over uh, YouTubes and websites of acts we want to get and... um, over the years, I've cultivated relationships with agents. And so I'm on a first-name basis with a lot of agents who rep really great acts who are looking for a gig on a Wednesday in between New York and Boston. So that's uh, one of the ideas of having Watermelon Wednesdays, although I have to, I have to add that uh, not all our shows are on Wednesdays. So uh, if you're interested in a show, go to our website. Make sure you get the day right and the time right, and the, uh, the website's www.watermelonwednesdays.com. It's calm, even though we're a nonprofit educational organization. Uh, I just note that uh, the Iron Horse used that as a model for many, many years. Acts in New York, going to Boston, or vice versa. Those folks need some place to be, or would like some place to be, and no place better than Western Massachusetts for these performances. So this model of get these fabulous acts because a weekday between New York and Boston, they are, tend to be available. So does our beloved uh, Northampton Jazz, uh, uh, does it every, like the Green Street three, Trio always has headliners that are on their way from here to there. Um, I, I have a question. This is Dan. What's with the name? What's with the name? Well, first of all, we're in West Whateley, my house. And second of all, um, uh, we like watermelon. And third of all, we like the alliteration of it. I, I, myself and Ronnie Arbo came up with this name 25 years ago, and it just seemed to have a ring to it, Watermelon Wednesdays and Wes Waitley. Rolls off my tongue. Uh, well, let's talk more seriously. I'm not sure that people, even in this region, really understand what Wes Waitley is. You're on the National Historic Registry. Uh, that It's a oh, landmark uh, area. Absolutely. Uh, and, and in fact... Uh, we're going to have a little celebration at my house, which is across the street from the chapel, so it's very easy for us to go over there and set it up, which I have to do after this. Uh, we're going to be celebrating our house 250th anniversary. Wow. So we are in a historic district, and ours is one of the few remaining historic houses. And the church, the acoustics in the church are sort of They're legend. amazing. They're legendary. We often have groups hang out after the show, and just jam, especially cellists and violinists like the sound. So all you cellists and violinists out there, don't miss. Uh, so Watermelon Wednesday, it focuses on acoustic groups, right? Yeah, absolutely. For that very reason? Well, yeah, I think so. Um, I can't imagine. The acoustics are so live, we couldn't possibly do a rock and roll set or electric instruments or drummers have a hard time toning it down with the acoustics. And we don't have a piano in the space. 
So that limits our jazz offerings. It's a Although, hard place to whisper at if you don't want anybody to hear That's you. right. The audience is very attentive. And the, uh, the performers love the audience. They love the chapel. And they love getting out of the city and having a home-cooked meal before the show. And, you know, so it all works. Now, Paul Nolan, you're a musician. I'd love to know what music that you've presented and are presenting most moves you. Well, the music that... Uh, <laughs> most moves me. I'm going to get shook up even thinking about it. Uh, last week was amazing. What moves me the most is vocal harmonies and uh, uh, the violin. Do you ever get up and play and jam with these folks? I've played for about two minutes in over 24 years. I'm not of that caliber. I can't play with my guests, unfortunately. I'm working on it, though. We're having a violinist from Ukraine, uh, Solomia uh, Ivakiv, who's coming on August 30th to play the Bach solo violin music, which is my favorite. So it, and there's still tickets available, and the proceeds, many, much of the proceeds will go to support uh, musicians still in Ukraine. And that's where we're going to go right after this break. We're going to talk about these upcoming uh, wonderful, there's a W, Watermelon Wednesday and West Waitley groups. And we'll talk about them wistfully. Ooh, right after this. White after this. It's so wonderful and warm. Breathe me in. Breathe me out. I don't Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. San Francisco's North Beach in the late 1950s. A new sound, a new scene, and the rich tradition of American folk music bolts into the national spotlight. Leading the charge, the Kingston Trio. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Hang down your head and cry. The Kingston Trio, a night at Northampton's Academy of Music, Wednesday, July 19th. Well, let me tell you of the story of a man named Charlie on a tragic and fateful day. Today's Kingston Trio, playing the timeless songs. Get tickets now at the Academy of Music website or box office. More than 50 years after Tom Dooley shot to the top of the charts and the Kingston Trio's spirited folk music captured the hearts of the nation, the trio lives on, bringing all the energy to these enduring songs. The Kingston Trio, Wednesday, July 19th, 7 p.m., Academy of Music, downtown Northampton. Where have all the flowers gone? High school is a time of discovery, of exploring the world and shaping your destiny. What happens in high school has a deep and lasting effect. At the Hartsbrook School in Hadley, that means discovering more than the right answers to test questions. Textbooks give way to learning through experience, experiments, research, and group projects. Hartsbrook students take their science studies into the woods or social studies into the community, working for food justice. Hartsbrook students connect with students worldwide with the modern
Model UN. And senior year, there's the year-long senior project. Each student chooses something to work on long-term with intensity. Also senior year, the class goes on a week-long community service trip. Hartsbrook students cultivate an unwavering sense that they can take action in the world and can handle adversity. The Hartsbrook School, on a 55-acre campus in Hadley. New students welcome in any grade. Schedule a visit on the Hartsbrook School website. Just call or email the admissions office. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And we are back with Director of Watermelon Wednesdays at West Waitley. I can't say it, Paul Newland. Keep practicing, but I'll keep practicing. So we, up until this point, in terms of Watermelon Wednesday, we've been talking about how it was seeded, how Watermelon Wednesday was seeded. But there's some incredible acts coming up. Could you tell us, first of all, tell people how to find tickets. Tell them again what the website is, All and right. then tell us what's coming. The website is www.watermelonwednesdays.com. You can go there to the homepage and then click on Upcoming Events, and that'll have all the information you need, including links to the ticket seller. And um, if you get tickets, your name will be on the list. You don't need to bring paper tickets. We'll just check you off when you arrive. And I'm looking at upcoming shows, and I, I want to start with... August 9th, Missy Rains and Allegheny. What is that? Okay, Missy Rains is a 10-time uh, International Bluegrass Association winner of Bass Player of the Year. She's wow. a phenomenon. She has played with everybody, so I'm not even going to bother to start going through all the groups she's played with and been Grammy-nominated, and, uh, and she'll be with her band, Allegheny. And this is a straight-up... Well, it's not exactly... As they say, not strictly bluegrass, but definitely bluegrassy. And um, she sings, and she's been uh, she's produced and created many albums to her name. And so, uh, how many how many tickets are generally available for Watermelon Wednesday? Ninety or so, plus okay. or minus. Not so a lot. So not people a lot. Have to really rush. It's a very intimate space, which is one of the things we like about it, yeah. and the performers love it too because they they can create a real rapport with the audience. Nothing better than that for a musician. Nothing better. No, it's true. Yeah, I'd point out that the festival in the Bay Area, hardly strictly bluegrass, one of the best in the country. There you go. So uh, we have August 16th, so that too will be a Wednesday. Yes, that's Fogo Non Trio, which is a group of three... Uh, musicians, this will be mostly acoustic in the choro and samba traditions from Brazil. It's so interesting. We just uh, were treated. There was a choro uh, camp at Smith College. Here, That's right. That's and right. Uh, we, we uh, had some musicians here, and they were, they were talking about fogo. This yeah. is fogo no trio. Fogo no trio. That's right. Which, as far as I could tell, um, means fire in the trio. That's correct. Thank you. My Portuguese is non-existent. So. Well, Dan's but Dan's is welcome. Dan, I love it. Really I good. love it. It's great. Everybody should go. Everybody should go. Did and you attend. buy your ticket yet? I brought uh, maybe. Yes, I will. Right <laughs> now, I All will. Right. I, I want a I commitment. Will. Solid commitment. There's still tickets left for that show, although it's going well uh, at this point, unusually well. So thanks. To so once you. again, this is an instrumental Brazilian trio playing this original music that's influenced by Choro Brazilian. 
Choro and Samba. Yes. And these are award-winning musicians. That's on August 16th, a Wednesday at 7.30. And at the, the instruments in that trio are uh, fiddle, mandolin, and guitar. Mm. Mm. And what's coming after that? What's coming after that is Mark Schatz and Brian McDowell. These are two people most people have never heard of outside their uh, musical affiliations. Mark Schatz has been around the music scene forever. He has, uh, he's played with Emmylou Harris, uh, Linda Ronstadt, Tim O'Brien, John Hartford. Uh, he's won IBM uh, International Bluegrass Music Awards uh, several times. Well, wow, Paul Newland. Uh, also, he's touring right now with Bella Fleck. The uh, there are times when Andrew. it is not unseemly to name drop. That's it sounds right. like that's one of these times, Paul Newland. Well, I didn't say anything about Brian McDowell, who's uh, less well known but equally talented. As a, they're both multi instrumentalists, and they both sing. And this will be um, uh, a concert of, you know, Rudy American old time bluegrassy tinged music i there's no the trouble with many of these groups is they don't have clearly defined genres so you just have to say okay uh they play almost everything traditional quite often that's a superpower a they superpower. don't have a genre you could just sort of pigeonhole well these guys i i think of these guys when i used to go hear uh doc watson and mike seeger play in the old days and um they're very reminiscent of that kind of music well, and they will be august 23rd and then we have solomia avakov uh on august 30th which i've already mentioned very excited about her i went to see her perform at uh, the university of hartford playing a brook violin concerto she blew me away and i've heard a lot of great fiddlers in my day but nobody better than her she's playing bach bach yes and maybe a ukrainian piece welcome bach she's welcome bach <laughs> Fuck off <laughs> with the puns here, and then uh, and we we'll, we we wanted to point out we, we you get the puns for free, yeah. <laughs> and I've only used that one like three times. I've been known to be a punster myself. <laughs> Ask anybody Today. who's been in a show. And then October seventh, we jumped to Kellos K A L O S, which uh, this is a group of Celtic, Breton, and uh, American North American fiddle, accordion, guitar, vocals powerhouse that I'd never heard of until I saw him at the parlor room uh, earlier this year. And uh, again, it was like ball in the house. I go to these shows, and sometimes I get so moved, I just get up and I go to the back room and I say, who's your agent or who do I talk to about booking you? That's the, that's the way it was with these guys. Why is that on a Friday instead of a Wednesday? Because they couldn't do it on a Wednesday. Good reason. I'm constrained by the artist. So I make exceptions. And then the lastly is December 6th, which isn't on the website yet. I'm still working on it, is a bluegrass, uh, Waitley's first bluegrass festival with Mama's Marmalade, Poor Monroe, and um, the non-local but excellent Mile 12 Bluegrass Ensemble. And that, should be, that will be at the Waitley Town Hall. That's the other thing. Some shows are at the Town Hall, uh, but... All the ones we've talked to, except for the bluegrass, the uh, December 6th, will be in the chapel. What a very interesting array of performers you have planned. So one more time, if people are interested, people should be interested. There's only 90 tickets per show. How do they get tickets? They go to watermelon, <clears throat> excuse me, they go to watermelonwednesdays.com. 
and they click on upcoming shows and they click on the show they're interested in and that'll take them to the ticket site. They buy their tickets and they try to find Wes Waitley. You know, this, this region is so rich with uh, musicians and performers and uh, as Bill said, it's, it's a miracle that you've been able to maintain, you and your colleagues have been able to maintain this for almost a quarter century and uh, it's something we definitely want to support. Well, I appreciate that a lot and thanks so much for having me on. Thank you, Paul. Paul Newland, director of Watermelon Wednesday. Check out their site, buy some tickets. We'll be right back. We've got a really interesting couple of people talking about a fascinating and important book. listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Some western mass farms were devastated by severe rain and flooding this week, with some losing the majority of their crops. Most of Grow Food Northampton's community farm was submerged in water, damaging most of the crops after the Mill River broke its banks. Mountain View Farm in East Hampton lost nearly all of its produce for its CSA customers this year and started a GoFundMe. As of Tuesday afternoon, the river levels started to recede but are expected to remain high throughout the weekend with more rain on the way. Flooding along rivers in Franklin County has presented many challenges to local farms. Seaslick's farmstead in South Deerfield is experiencing flooding in their cornfields in the North Meadows. They're hoping to salvage some of the crops and plant again. Natural Roots Farm in Conway sustained significant crop damage and lost some chickens and farm equipment in the initial flooding. Volunteers joined the farmers Tuesday to help with cleanup after their fields were covered in water. Mount Tom Road near the Oxbow will be closed in both directions until further notice due to flooding, according to an announcement by the Northampton Police Department. Barricades will be in place on both the East Hampton and Northampton sides of Mount Tom Road to prevent access. However, access to the Route 91 ramp will still be available for those traveling from Northampton. Well, it's going to be a sunny day today. We do have a sun cloud mix for our sky conditions and highs in the upper 80s and the lower 90s. Then tonight, it's going to stay mostly clear with the chance for a spot shower or two. Lows are in the mid to high 60s. Then tomorrow, we're going to get that sun cloud mix again during the day, but showers in the p.m. Highs are in the high 80s and the low 90s. I'm Jack Wu with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 
1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community, and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Downtown Sounds? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Downtown Sounds Workers Co-op, a music store with new and used instruments and lessons. Live online or live in person. First lessons free when you buy an instrument. Plus, repairs of musical instruments and equipment. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Some years ago, I flew to Atlanta. I had an address. I took a cab to the address. There was no sign on the door. There was no number on the door. I was there because I had volunteered to participate in as defense counsel on a death penalty case, on a post-conviction case, and I had no idea where I was, and I didn't know how I was ever going to get into this very dark building, and I eventually found a buzzer, and I said, okay, well, here I am, and I buzzed, and the door opened, and there was this big welcoming smile from one Brian Stevenson, who was, well, as Buzz and I put it, We knew Brian Stevenson before he was Brian Stevenson uh, and had, of course, become the best-selling author of uh, Just Mercy, uh, the movie, of course, fabulous. We walked up the stairs, and there I was introduced to one Steve Stephen Bright. At the beginning of the book— Excuse me, before he was Stephen Bright. (laughs) Yeah, he was kind of Stephen Bright at that point. I'll tell you why in just a second. Uh, Stephen Bright uh, and James Kwok— are the authors of a new book, The Fear of Too Much Justice, Race, Poverty, and the Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal Courts. The introduction is by the aforementioned Brian Stevenson, who, of course, is the founder of the Equal Justice Institute. And here's what he says in the introduction. During my first year in law school, I began to doubt whether becoming a lawyer made sense. The curriculum and discourse often seemed focused on the powerful and privileged. I began to feel that the generation of lawyers who came into my racially segregated community and changed things when I was a child were no more. Meeting Steve Bright changed things for me. 
Steve revived a hope that I could make a difference as an attorney in the lives of people who were unfairly discarded, oppressed, and condemned. His passionate commitment to fighting for the condemned was energizing and compelling. I became one of the many lawyers and law students who have been influenced and encouraged by Steve Bright to challenge the justice deficit in our country. With us today, Steve Bright and James Kwok. James Kwok, we should note, is a resident of Amherst. He is the immediate past chair of the Southern Center for Human Rights, former professor of law at the University of Connecticut, and the author of a number of books on justice. Steve Wright, James Kwok, thank you so much for being with us today. I would like to begin by asking about the title, The Fear of Too Much Justice. Where does that come from? Let's start with you, Steve. Well, it comes from a case the Supreme Court in 1987, the Supreme Court had before it uh, a study of uh, the death penalty in Georgia, which showed marked racial disparities. You're much more likely, a person is much more likely to get the death penalty uh, if the victim in the case is white, uh, much more likely if the defendant in the case is black, and much more likely, particularly if you have a combination of a white victim and a black defendant. Uh, and in that case, very close case, five to four case decided by the Supreme Court, uh, but the Supreme Court basically held that Georgia could go ahead and continue to carry out its death penalty uh, despite those racial disparities. And one of the reasons given for that by Justice Powell writing for the majority uh, was that if we dealt with race discrimination with regard to the death penalty, the court would have to deal with race discrimination with regard to all other kinds of sentencing. Uh, this was not new for Justice Powell. He had actually pointed this out in 1972 when the Supreme Court had found the death penalty as it had been carried out in the country up until that time uh, was unconstitutional in part because of racial disparities. Uh, he made the same point then. Uh, well, uh, there are racial disparities in all kinds of sentencing throughout the criminal legal system. Why would we just look at the death penalty? Uh, Justice Brennan, in that 1987 case, responded uh, in his dissent by saying this was a fear of too much justice, uh, that uh, the court uh, should deal uh, with race disparities, not only with regard to the death penalty, but throughout the system. But what I've noticed ever since 1987 is that seems to be a rationale for stopping short in so many different contexts of what we ought to be doing uh, to provide real justice, uh, providing real public defenders, uh, providing disclosure of prosecutorial uh, materials so you have a fair trial, uh, picking juries without race discrimination, that uh, there just seems to be an acknowledgement that yes, there are things we could do, uh, but it's just more justice uh, than, than, we can, uh, than we're willing to, to have. Let's stay with this question of racial inequality in the criminal system, particularly in the death penalty system. Uh, you, uh, uh, Steve Bright and James Kwok, have a chapter in your new book, The Fear of Too Much Justice, the title of which is The Whitewashed Jury. And you explain how, well, you're not supposed to be able to have a uh, uh, all-white jury anymore. You're not supposed to be able to use your peremptory challenges, the prosecutors not be able to use peremptory challenges to challenge black people on the jury. And yet, their long history, the long, sordid, disgusting history of this kind of racism in our criminal courts actually still persists. Maybe I should turn to James Kwok and ask you, how could that possibly be? 
Well, I think this is a good example of another theme that we see often in the book, which is that our justice system and the Supreme Court in particular like to make certain high-minded pronouncements, you know, beginning with the motto on the Supreme Court building, equal justice under law. And one of the examples, uh, a good example is, is what you mentioned. So in Batson v. Kentucky in 1986, the Supreme Court said that essentially you are not allowed to use your peremptory strikes on the basis of race. Which was a dramatic change in the law because not long before that, the Supreme Court said, fine, you're using peremptory challenges. Those are challenges for no reason or any reason against a prospective juror. Get rid of all the black people. That's just fine with the United States Supreme Court. That's what they actually said. Exactly, yeah. So in the early 1960s, there was a case that said exactly that. In 1986, they they purported to make a change. So in principle now, you cannot strike a juror on the basis of race or, race or gender. However, when it came time to back up those words, the Supreme Court instituted a test which is extremely easier for prosecutors to pass. Essentially, the way it works is that a defense lawyer has to raise an objection saying, hey, Mr. Prosecutor, you struck this juror because, of, because he was black. Uh, which, first of all, rarely happens because these are small communities where the def the defense attorney knows that if he says that, um, the prosecutor is not going to work with him as well in the future. And then the judge, who often knows the prosecutors very well, has to decide whether or not the strike was actually made on the basis of race or for some other race-neutral reason which the prosecutor is allowed to, to suggest. And... There are two problems here. One is the Supreme Court has allowed essentially extremely trivial uh, race-neutral reasons, such as facial hair, uh, not making eye contact, and so on. So it's very easy for prosecutors to come up with a reason. And then the judge, for there to be a violation, the judge has to essentially say that the prosecutor is lying, which, um, you know, I forget who it was. One, one person said the system depends on believing that one elected official is going to say another elected official is lying. And we should have known from the beginning that system would not work. So just on the larger theme, I think there are many cases where we have certain principles, like the right to counsel, which in the abstract sound good, but we have failed to back them up either in the courts or in the legislatures and, and uh, local governments. I just want to point out that when Batson was first um, found, it, using race to uh, peremptorily challenge prospective jurors, um, was unconstitutional, but they said we're not going to retroactively apply it because, as Stephen Bright was saying, that's just too much justice. That flipped me out at the time. How can it be unconstitutional now, but it's okay that it happened in the past? Exactly. I think a lot of those cases are, as you say, it's a perfect example of saying we don't want to upset the system too much. Right, and that the law of retroactivity or non-retroactivity is specifically designed to make sure that if there was an incremental change in justice or even a significant change in justice, those who were suffered from the injustices will not be helped. There'll, no geese. there'll be no remedy. I was struck by something in your book on this topic about the law that says peremptory challenges, that is, strikes of prospective jurors for no reason or any reason, that there's a prosecutor's manual on, well, how to come up with a reason that will pass legal muster that is totally fabricated to cover the question or, the, or how they are uh, uh, making strikes, using their peremptory challenges on the basis of race, and then covering it up. In other words, it's a manual on how to lie. Do I have that right? Let's start. Steve Bright? Right. Once, once this uh, became the law that you had to give reasons, uh, the prosecutors started developing lists and passing them out at their conferences. And basically, 
here, if you want to strike an African-American, uh, here are some reasons. And as the law evolved, the Supreme Court says in one case, well, uh, the strike of a person because a black person because he had facial hair uh, or because he had long hair as opposed to close cropped hair. Uh, that's a race neutral reason. That's okay. Well, you just put that on the list. So if you want to strike a black, if the person has facial hair, there you go. You've already got a reason. Uh, so it really totally uh, undercut any hope that this would prevent discrimination because their lists, their long lists of reasons and a prosecutor just simply looks down at the list and reads off a couple of reasons and the judge upholds it. It's a very perfunctory process. It's one of the places I think which is so disturbing where everybody knows what's really going on. Uh, everybody knows a person's being struck because of race. Uh, and yet we go through this, uh, you know, pretend uh, exercise that it's actually for some other reason. I'd just like to add, so in the case of Tim Foster, which we discussed at length, this is a good example because you'll see prosecutors citing um, one reason to strike one juror and the opposite reason to strike another juror. And then another, another thing that we saw in that case is they would cite a reason to strike a juror and that same fact applied to certain white jurors whom they did not strike. And the only reason why we, why Steve won that case was because in that specific case, we had the prosecution's notes, which said that, uh, in, in which they had highlighted the black jurors mm -hmm. and made various comments about black jurors. It's very hard to win these cases. Um, Steve has won three of them, but it's very hard to win them uh, despite this behavior. Steve Bright, we should point out, indeed has won multiple capital cases before the United States Supreme Court. He teaches law at Yale and Georgetown, and he was the longtime director of the Southern Center for Human Rights. James Kwok is the immediate past chair of the Southern Center for Human Rights, former professor of law at UConn, and the author of a number of books. Their new book, Together, co-authored is The Fear of Too Much Justice, Race, Poverty, and the Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal Courts. I want to ask you this question. You make a controversial, I think, suggestion with regard to how to try to eliminate racism in jury selection, and you call for the elimination of peremptory challenges. That's challenges by the defense and the prosecution, of course, uh, for no reason or any reason. That's going to make defense attorneys nervous, I think, and I'd appreciate how you think that would work better. Uh, let's start with you, if we might please. James Kwok? Sure. So I will say that it's not, not just us. I think Justice Thurgood Marshall um, in, in the 1980s said that the only solution to race discrimination is to eliminate peremptory challenges altogether. I believe one state has done this, and the world has not uh, ended. Uh, so as, as you know, you can have jurors removed for cause. So if you think, if you have reason in the voir dire process to, find, to think that a juror cannot address the issues fairly, then um, you can petition to have that person removed for cause, and that's up for the judge to decide. With wide discretion of the judge. Yeah, that, that is true. So, I, I mean, I think a severe reduction in the number of peremptory challenges uh, would probably be suffice if you could get it down to maybe three peremptory challenges so that if you have someone who really um, is, is, a, is a real oddball and you can't convince the judge to excuse that person... Um, and that would, that would mean it would make it much harder for a prosecutor to eliminate all the people of color in a jury pool. Steve Bright, you agree? I agree. I mean, I've been saying for a long time that uh, maybe the answer is to just reduce the number, uh, say three, uh, as James says. Then if the prosecutor, if there's somebody you think is just really cannot, you don't want to have sit on because they may hang the jury, if you're the defense and there's someone you think is going to uh, you know, take command of the jury and, and bring back a death sentence, uh, 
uh, you've got some ability uh, to strike those people, but you don't have the ability to strike every person of color, uh, which is what happens. So often we have prosecutors, it differs from state to state, uh, but say in many places it's 10. So if you only have five, six African-Americans in the final uh, pool of jurors from which the jury is struck, uh, it's very easy to using 10 strikes to strike all five, six, whatever it is, uh, African-Americans. If you only have three strikes, it would be more difficult. Uh, so that's another possibility. Uh, right now, we're seeing in Arizona, the first state, the second year now, in which it's gone without peremptory strikes, and we'll see what happens there. Uh, in terms of jury selection, in terms of jury behavior. Uh, they're more, as I understand it, they're more hung juries, but maybe that's because the juries are more representative uh, of the community. I just want to circle back for a minute, Professor Kwok. You, you said something called voir dire of prospective jurors. What is that? Uh, that's the process in which uh, attorneys for both sides are allowed to interview jurors, um, ask them about, in a death penalty case, ask them, for example, about their opinions about the death penalty and decide if they want to be on, if they uh, are comfortable with having them on the jury. We are speaking with James Kwok and Stephen Bright, authors, co-authors of the new book, The Fear of Too Much Justice, Race, Poverty, and the Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal Courts. When we come back, we're going to talk about exactly that and the conviction of innocent people right after this. With 21 minutes to go. And I called up the mayor, but he's out to lunch. I got 20 more minutes to go. Then the sheriff said, boy, I'm going to watch you die with 19 minutes to go. So I laughed in his face. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman. Weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. Got chronic joint pain? Not having success with steroids, but trying to avoid surgery? Well, thankfully, there's a better way, and now it's available here from the medical professionals at QC Kinetics. I'm talking about new, advanced regenerative medicine treatments that can restore and repair damaged tissue in your bad joints, providing lasting relief with no drugs, no surgery, and no downtime. This is an all-natural way to use highly concentrated healing properties from your own body to give you lasting relief. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in precision regenerative medicine with over 100 clinics across America and literally thousands of satisfied patients. If you've got joint pain due to arthritis, knee pain, hip pain, shoulder pain, don't just think the old ways of dealing with pain are the only ways. You need to learn more about these new regenerative options that can change your life. Call QC Kinetics now. It's a free consultation with local medical professionals. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. 
everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Stephen Bright and James Kwok. They are the authors, co-authors of the new book, The Fear of Too Much Justice, Race, Poverty, and the Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal Courts. In your book, you point out this, and I'm quoting a sentence or two. The U.S. Sentencing Commission found that African-American men in federal courts receive sentences that are 19% longer on average than similarly situated white men. And you go on to explain why and how. We have this myth that somehow the courts are now equal and just and fair and racial bias doesn't play a part. And that this book is replete with examples in virtually every aspect of the system, how racism predominates as a force. And I would appreciate your perspective on how that is still true. Let's start with you, Steve Bright. Well, the criminal courts are the part of society that's been least affected by the civil rights movement. What people don't appreciate is the tremendous amount of discretion that prosecutors have, whether to charge or not to charge, what to charge, whether to seek the death penalty, whether to seek life without parole or some other enhanced sentence. These are discretionary decisions that are made by one, usually one white man, without any review by a judge or anybody else. So we tell the story of a couple of women in Georgia who are facing the death penalty, the prosecutor says, if you want to plead guilty, uh, in, in one case says, well, you'll, you'll be uh, sentenced to life imprisonment, eligible for parole. Uh, both cases, the women turn them down. Uh, both cases, the prosecutor seeks and obtains the death penalty. Uh, in one case, he argues to the jury that uh, this crime was so terrible uh, that the only appropriate sentence is the death penalty. But he knew better because he had offered the person a sentence of life in prison for the very same crime. The only reason the case went to trial and the person got the death penalty uh, was because of the refusal to take the plea bargain. Uh, and we see that throughout the system. I think that has a lot to do with the sentencing disparities as we talked about at the start of the program. Uh, we see sentencing disparities on the base of race, not only uh, with the death penalty, but with regard to all kinds of sentencing throughout the system. Yeah, and as you point out, Steve, the prosecutor's decision on what to charge, which as a practical matter often means what sentence the defendant will receive, as well as the judge's sentencing decision, are completely discretionary, virtually unreviewable. And I'd appreciate your perspective on that, James Kwok. Yeah, I think this is an example where uh, discretion, which the Supreme Court has celebrated, turns out to be a real motor of inequality. I mean, you asked about Racial disparities, I think a lot of it, I mean, there are many reasons. There's the history of slavery, there's conscious and unconscious bias by actors in the legal system, and then there's poverty. So uh, a lot of what we've said about race could apply to poverty and income inequality as well. Poverty is also part of the subtitle of the book. Uh, we've talked briefly about the right to counsel, so there's obviously a huge difference in the kind of defense that you can have, if you, depending on whether you have the money to afford a top-class lawyer uh, or not. Um, and, you know, there are many ways in which poverty affects outcomes in the, in the criminal legal system. One that's gotten some attention in recent years has been uh, cash bail, right? So if you don't have the money to make bail, you sit in jail, you are much, much more likely to plead guilty um, because you want to get back to your family and get back to your job, uh, and you suffer a lot of, you know, economic consequences from being in jail. Right. You're given the choice. You can walk out of jail today. You've been in for two months. You can walk out today 
All you have to do is plead guilty, or you can stay in jail for the next six, eight, or eight, nine, ten months or a year and go to trial and take your chances. What do you want to do? Exactly. And I think this is, a, this is another example of where the fear of too much justice comes into play, because if we had a system where all poor people had access to lawyers, you know, had access to lawyers like Steve Bite, we know that a lot more cases would go to trial. There would be many fewer plea bargains. And, and we don't have the money. We don't have the judges. We don't even have the prosecutors to handle that many cases. So we depend on uh, having this amount of injustice to, to allow the system to work. You point out, I quote one sentence in your book, the conviction of innocent people, although the most striking failure of the criminal legal system, is only the tip of the iceberg. And then later on in the book, you have a title of a subchapter, Mass Probation. Can you tell us what that means? Let's start with you, Steve Bright. Well, sure, as James talked about just a moment ago, and as you did as well, but a lot of people are told, if you plead guilty today, you'll get out of jail. Uh, what they often don't are not told right at first, but find out later is they're put on probation with a number of uh, conditions that they probably can't meet, uh, many of which are totally unnecessary, like they'll be required to uh, undergo drug testing, even though they may not have any drug uh, history whatsoever. Uh, basically, they're going to be set up to fail. Uh, they'll be told they have to pay fines and fees, which they can't pay, but they'll be told, well, you can pay on the installment plan pay so much a month, but then what they will learn as well is they'll have to pay a monthly fee to a private probation company, uh, and they won't be able to make those payments very often. Uh, and so what happens is that while uh, they're free at first and they're on probation, uh, ultimately they're going to be revoked and then they're going to go spend time in jail or in prison, depending uh, upon the seriousness of the charge. So that unfortunately happens with a great deal of frequency. Well. We are going to have to leave it there. We have been speaking with Stephen Bright and James Kwok. Their new book is The Fear of Too Much Justice, Race, Poverty, and the Persistence of Inequality in the Criminal Courts. It is a really striking, in some ways difficult, enormously informative, really helpful book, The Fear of Too Much Justice. I just want to point out, Bill, a, a lot of people who go to law school, what they have in mind is they're going to ride, ride on a white horse and help people, and uh, Stephen Bright, James Kwok, and the fear of too much justice is exactly why so many people go to law school so that they can do better. Meanwhile, like our guest today, let's all walk the walk. That's why we have Talk the Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can WHMP. do at 